After marking hymn number 58, as Brother Harold asked us to do, perhaps we can consider the gloriousness of some of those announcements and the improvement of some who've been sick, as we made note of earlier, and the continuing hope that we have that others who are sick and ill will soon find things better for them, that God will have blessed them in such a way the health will continue to improve, and the great strides can be made toward that end and that wonderful goal. It is a joyous thing that brings us together today, of course, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, as proclaimed unto us in the New Testament, that marvelous day on which our Savior arose from the dead and giving hope to all of us that we too can one day rise from that character of death, not only in the nature of repentance and baptism, but ultimately in the nature of one day living with Him forevermore in heaven never to die again. That great morning of resurrection perhaps instills within our mind a thought of what shall be some of the characteristics of the lesson we shall consider this morning. As you may have noted in the bulletin, a study of the 16th chapter and the 16th verse of Mark will be what we will set before ourselves today. Perhaps some introductory thoughts in regard to that might instill within us a journey, a thought that will help us as we proceed along that way. A study of Mark 16, verse 16. I believe all of us would readily concur with the statement in 2 Peter 3, verse 16, that there are some passages of the Holy Scriptures that are more difficult to appreciate and apprehend and comprehend than others. Peter made that statement about some of the writings of Paul. Notice he said, some of those passages are hard to be understood, which some, and notice carefully how the verse closes with us, which some unlearned and unstable souls rest, W-R-E-S-T, to their own destruction. That is not in any sense an excuse whereby we thus can look on a text and throw up our hands and say, I can't understand that. For notice, Peter said those who rest it and those who are unstable with regard to it do so to their own destruction. God has given us the capability of understanding His will sufficiently to appreciate the truth in it. I make that statement to say, true enough, some passages are somewhat more difficult to fully appreciate than others. But there are also some that are absolutely straightforward. Our Savior declared in John 8, 32, "...ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free." As you and I have that desire within us to know the truth, to even come to understand the more difficult parts of the Holy Scriptures, that falls under the heading of rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. In our desire to do that, I close the opening slide then of our lesson today to note the tragic sadness that then accords to the degree that some take towards simple passages, passages that there's no excuse for misunderstanding. Those simple ones, of them perhaps there's no single text in all the New Testament that is more, quote, misunderstood, not to say there's any reason for misunderstanding it. No single passage more misapplied, and I put that in quotation marks, for again, there is no reason to misapply it, given that this text not only touches the subject of salvation, but it also is one of the most grammatically simple sentences to be found anywhere in the holy book of God. With those ideas said, let's turn then to Mark 16, verse 16. Revisit that passage. Note the simplicity that accords to it and appreciate, first of all, some of the things that men have done to it, some of the things that men have striven to teach concerning it. 
All the while, might we quickly note these are human renditions of that text, not the Holy Spirit's rendition. So as we begin, please take careful note, this is not an attempt to say what the Bible says about it. It's what men have said about it. Mark 16, verse number 16. The first rendition that some men will take toward this text, as well as a host of others, is in fact this one. He that believeth and is baptized shall not be saved. Now, as we make that statement again, that is distinguished from and differentiated to what the text is that was read by Brother Joy a few moments ago. Notice the word not has been entered. There are some who teach, He that believeth and is baptized shall not be saved. Those that fall under that heading are, of course, the atheists. That is to say, those who have no belief in God, who have no understanding or appreciation for the Word of God, and who furthermore think there's nothing to be saved from. There's nothing after death at all, so they say. One lives and once he dies, that's the entirety of that point. Why believe? Why be baptized? There is no meaning, in fact, for the character of the Word of God. That's what some in our world would certainly have power to inform you and me of. Regardless whether you believe or not, regardless whether you're baptized or not, there's nothing awaiting you. As you and I contemplate over the thoroughness of that, would it not be fair to at least describe the sadness that must describe a life like that? Those who feel like there's nothing ahead, there's nothing brighter, no brighter day beyond. Might we quickly note, the Bible does use some very choice words to describe those of that mentality. In Psalm 53, the opening verse of that wonderful chapter, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. That word fool means those who have blinded themselves to the evidence. That is to say, rather than taking what evidence is before them and using the observational characteristics that God has blessed them with, they choose to use them in a way to ignore the evidence. God calls them a fool. Perhaps another text that uses a choice word for them. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, in that wonderful resurrection chapter of the New Testament, Paul said, If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. The American Standard, perhaps more interestingly and correctly, uses the word pitiable. In this life only if we have hope in Christ Jesus, we're of all men most pitiable. You and I very frankly and honestly can pity the folks who are of that frame of mind, who do not believe in God, who have no consideration for His will. They're to be pitied. How sad it must be to live a life without any hope of what's beyond and any help really in this life here. For there's no help to be found in men, Psalm 146, verse 3. Those ideas and thoughts alone lead us quickly to appreciate that perhaps another thought can be said. Not only does the Bible help us to see the descriptions of these people and how sad that it is, the Bible also has a rather tragic note that's going to resoundingly await them. In Romans 1 verse 20, we read the following text again from the pen of the Apostle Paul. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. On the day of judgment it will avail them nothing to say, but God, I didn't believe in you. I didn't think there was sufficient evidence to warrant the conclusion that you exist. 
And God's just going to simply say, I made that globe that you walk on. I fashioned your body and all the majestic intricacies of it. And that wasn't enough. You look up in the night sky and see the virtually numberless stars of the heavens, and I made every one of them. And that wasn't enough. Paul said, they are without excuse. And furthermore, he went on to say five verses later, they worship and serve the creature more than the creator. They'll have to give an account for that decision and choice they've made. What a tragedy that they have taken Mark 16, 16 and ignored it, neglected it to their own destruction. It's clear that this opening rendition, as the last point on the slide indicates, is not what the Savior taught. Let's consider another rendition of Minion. Another thing that can be done to Mark 16, verse 16. There are some who will approach the verse this way. He that believeth not and is not baptized shall be saved. There are those in our world, and perhaps you and I are aware from time to time, of the thoroughness and sometimes the strength with which they gain public notoriety. He that believeth not and is not baptized shall nonetheless be saved. These are the universalists. They feel that all men everywhere shall be saved. They think that it matters not what you do or you don't do. God, by virtue of His love and His mercy and His grace, will save everyone. And in particular, they very firmly believe that there is no way a loving God, filled with mercy and filled with compassion and filled with grace, could consign anyone to an eternity in hell. And so they just quickly move that thought from their mind and have nothing more to do with it. They think God will save all people, regardless whether you believe or not, whether you're baptized or not. They'd quickly say that to believe and to involve oneself with some degree of spiritual work perhaps benefits others. It perhaps is some word of goodness, but it does not ultimately matter in the eternal scheme of salvation. To make a statement like that, perhaps we can readily see that those of that mindset and those of that frame of consideration must ultimately ignore a large part of the New Testament and are in fact at least recast it into a different form. For in fact, how often does the New Testament make reference to the fact of an eternal punishment? How often did Jesus in fact make note of it? Interestingly enough, the word hell, H-E-L-L, as descriptive of that eternal place of torment and anguish, that word is found eight times in the New Testament, and the Savior used it, every one of them, without exception. Now, if anyone from his great position as the very second member of the Godhead should know whether or not there's a hell, and whether or not the characteristics of truth given in the New Testament are accurate, he should. And yet, he's the one that used that word eight times. In fact, if we could simply refer to Mark the ninth chapter and let the Savior himself describe this place, we'll begin reading in verse 43 of that chapter. Mark chapter 9, verse number 43. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, the place called Gehenna, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, 
into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Pausing it after the reading of verse 48, those are the words of Jesus. They weren't the words of some first century preacher, perhaps like myself, not some uninspired person. The Son of God made reference to this place and said, I'm telling you, it exists. And your interest and your consideration to ensure that you will not go to that place ought to be sufficiently stern and sufficiently on, on guard that you would even, in a way, be willing to do whatever was necessary to the physical body to warrant the removal of the thought of going to this place called Gehenna Fire, the place where the fire is never quenched. Perhaps you and I can feel sorry for the universalist then, who believes that so much of the New Testament can be ignored, that it doesn't matter that God will save everyone, when in fact that's not what the New Testament teaches. I've listed some other passages for your consideration as well. I've listed, in fact, all eight of the occurrences of that word by the lips of Jesus found in Matthew and Mark as well as in Luke. Perhaps another angle, though, would be exceedingly interesting to consider. These universalists, or the universalist perspective, is so very intent on saying that heaven is eternal and God's going to send everyone there. When in some verses like Matthew 25, 46, the exact same adjective in Greek describes heaven as it does hell. Friend, if heaven is eternal, hell is too. It is identically the same word descriptive of either one, and Jesus employed it. There is no reason then with a simple reading of the New Testament for anyone to think, at least if he believes it, the consideration that the universalist idea can be accepted. It can't. Other passages to consider. In 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7, when Paul wrote to the brethren in Thessalonica, he said, To you who are troubled, rest with us, for the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. In what way can one make any sense of that text if one says it does not teach what it clearly teaches? That there's coming a time when all those who have not obeyed the gospel will be rendered into a place of eternal punishment away from God's presence. That's the clear import of Paul's statement, isn't it? Oh, indeed, hell is a real place. It awaits those who have not obeyed. It awaits those who've twisted and rested, Mark 16, 16. For in fact, as the very last point notes, again, that is not, that's clearly not the thing that the Lord stated. Perhaps a third rendition. What else might well have been done to this text? Others will read it this way. He that believeth not and is baptized shall be saved. Notice again, a change has been made to the inspired text. He that believeth not and is baptized. In fact, there are a whole host of those in our world of that frame of mind who are of the disposition to think that I could take a little baby, baptize that baby, and at that moment his consignment to heaven is assured. 
Never again is there any way that little baby or the grown adult that'll come there from can be lost. All that's necessary, put a little water on him, baptize it if you will. It matters not if he's able to believe he's saved. Is that what the Lord taught? Is that in harmony with his will? Some passages certainly of interest. I've listed a few of the types of individuals who firmly believe this. The Catholic idea, the Lutheran idea, just to name two. In fact, I've even listed a statement of the actual doctrine that is upheld by the Lutherans, and I'd invite you to listen to it with me. When an infant is baptized, and notice I'm quoting here, when an infant is baptized, God creates faith in the heart of that infant. Thus, they readily admit that there was no faith prior to that time, and hence belief is not a requirement. It is not a prerequisite in this frame of mind. But in their idea, God must miraculously create it in the heart of that infant at the moment that he, that he or she is baptized. Might we at least consider, does the Bible uphold that idea? What is faith? In Hebrews 11 verse 1, faith is defined. In fact, the inspired writer said, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Question, is it possible for an infant to analytically, logically, and thoroughly consider the evidence presented to him and make a very concrete decision and follow through the actions therefrom? That's what faith is. And I believe all of us, with perhaps a smirk on our face, would say it's clear that a baby cannot do that. And thus, a baby cannot have the degree of faith necessary, thus involved in texts like Mark 16, 16. That thought alone, of course, follows rather dramatically from the belief that babies are born in sin, which they are not. Perhaps that's a discussion for a different time. But as we consider this perversion of Mark 16, 16, he that believeth not and is baptized shall be saved, that clearly is not what the Savior taught. In Galatians 5, verse 6, we read that that which avails before God is faith which worketh by love. Faith which worketh by love. We've already asserted that that infant does not have that faith. They are not able to follow through the steps of Hebrews eleven six, which itself reads, the clarity and beauty of the necessity of faith. The thought then of that text sees yet another perversion from the pen of men taken a text, perverted, twisted to their own destruction. But might we consider another? Another approach that can be taken to this text and this passage. There are those who very resoundingly and also with great sincerity will teach Mark 16, 16 in this way. He that believeth and is not baptized shall be saved. In fact, you'll notice all the times through this one, the first four, we have noted perversions of this text. And notice I have not placed them in quotation marks, nor have I placed them in italics. These are men's statements. He that believeth and is not baptized shall be saved. Is that what the Lord said? As we can well see, there are many in our world who nonetheless are very happy to satisfy themselves in believing this, as you discuss with many comrades and friends, you may discover that this is the principal idea behind the Baptist doctrine. Belief without baptism is sufficient to save. In fact, another rendition of that same idea is this. He that believeth and is saved shall be baptized. 
No, the order has been swapped. They put salvation prior to, to baptism. And even in that place, if a person's saved, why would it be necessary to be baptized? It'll be our interest to look, of course, at what that does say. Might we begin by noting, it is an absolute logical impossibility to harmonize this rendition that we've stated with the text in the Bible. The Lord put baptism in his statement prior to salvation, and furthermore, the word not does not precede baptism. So much so that we may pretty plainly put it this way. Either baptism is required or it's not. The Lord said it was. The apostles preached that it was in the book of Acts. The first century church was built on the foundation that it was. And now men are saying in some cases that it's not. Well, where will you put your faith? With the Lord? With those apostles? With the first century church? Or with these men some 19 centuries removed from the time of our Savior? The answer ought to be obvious, shouldn't it? Perhaps continuing on in that sheet. Notice that James had some indirect references in regard to this point, didn't he? As he made references about what constitutes a faith that's not dead. Beginning in verse 17, then, of James chapter 2. Notice, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. Pausing only at that point to note, it is thus an absolute requirement that one's faith must demonstrate itself or illustrate itself in the works that one does. Abraham was the friend of God because he did what God said do. So too was Noah described as a marvelous person of faith in Hebrews 11, verses 7 and following. And yet is it not said of Noah, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he, Genesis 6.22. An idea like that one thus leads us to see that there's a very serious issue and problem with this human rendition of Mark 16.16, isn't it? He that believeth and is not baptized shall be saved. That doesn't seem to harmonize with other passages, certainly with those about which we're shortly to see. Perhaps in closing that sheet, we might note that there are some arguments occasionally made by those of that framework to substantiate their thinking. No doubt it seems the two to three most common are these. Wasn't the thief on the cross saved without baptism? Wasn't Martha saved without baptism in John 11? To each of them we might well state, how do you know that thief wasn't baptized? Luke 7, verses 29 and 30 indicate that it was the expectation of God, even in that era, for those that were of Jewish background to consider the preaching of John the Baptist and to respond in faith to it. Friend, you don't know that thief wasn't baptized. The next thing could well be stated is this. Whether he was or was not, are you living under the same law that he was? And of course, the obvious answer from Colossians 2, verses 12 to 17 is no. That law was nailed to the cross, that law under which the thief lived. That law under which the thief lived has been taken out of the way. Ephesians 2, verses 15 to 18. In Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. That law is such that it's been removed from us so that we now can be blemishless and spotless before the character of God. Friend, you don't live beneath that law. Though it's worthy of your study and worthy of your consideration in regard to learning lessons therefrom, it is not the binding law today. In regard to Martha, 
same kinds of ideas might well be stated concerning her. It's easy then to see that one must give deeper consideration to this character of discussions and arguments than what might well be given by so many. But perhaps furthermore, might we notice in closing to that sheath that that's not again what Jesus taught. What about a fifth rendition? Another consideration or way that you and I could see this. And I'd ask you to note the difference. I've placed this one not only in italics but in quotation marks. It's the rendering of Mark 16, 16 from the lips of our Savior. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. How difficult is that to understand? Really? I'd submit to you that if you have children, your fifth graders have been asked to parse an English sentence more complicated than that one. And by parse, I mean identify the subject, identify the verb, conclude something about any adjectives or adverbs that may be present. Our fifth graders can parse a sentence far more difficult than that one. The word he is a pronoun. It has reference to any person regardless of gender. Notice the verb, shall be saved. It's future tense. It has a helping character in the sense that the word shall is present. He shall be saved. If that were the text, that would thus describe universal salvation to all people. However, the subject is qualified. The word he has a condition on it. Who is the he that shall be saved? It's he that does something, that believes and is baptized. Thus, that qualifier, notice, is an adjective in its structure. And it has two parts to it. The he must believe and the he must be baptized. Failure to do either one thus removes the fulfillment to the criterion and thus removes the promised object, salvation. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. In looking, though, at that text, might we notice that the consequence that necessarily follows is then that he who does not believe or he that is not baptized will not be saved. That's the natural English conclusion. Now, to say all that differently, you and I need not allow human intuition or human parsing of a grammatical sentence to answer it. What do we find to be the matter of the New Testament with regard to a, an idea such as this one? I'd ask you to take a very brief journey with me through some passages. As we start to look at what Jesus taught, notice in the Great Commission of Matthew's account, all power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world." The making of disciples of all nations involves their baptism. What about Luke's version in Luke 24, beginning in verse 46? Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Remission of sins is mentioned. It is a significant fact that sins are what have separated the human family from God. Without that remission... We might appreciate there can be no salvation. Notice in Luke, he has told us the necessity of repentance and the character again of having those sins remitted. As we turn the page to the book of Acts, on the first day of the church, the first day of its existence, in Acts the second chapter, 
What sense ought to be made of Peter's inspired remark? When those on Pentecost were pricked in the heart and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter's reply certainly is not in harmony with any of the four renditions that we've looked at previously. Peter's reply, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. They were told to be baptized. Thus, how can it be thought that baptism is thus an optional matter? It wasn't on Pentecost. That thought leads us to the next chapter. Chapter 3, verse 19. Peter again preaching in Solomon's porch to a group of Jews gathered together. Turn again, he told them, and seek the refreshing from the days of the Lord. Notice that turning again involves the same idea of repentance and that matter of refreshing an allusion to baptism. Or what about Acts 8, verse 12? Here's a different preacher. This time it's Philip, one of the deacons, if you will, one of the disciples mentioned in Acts chapter 6. On that occasion, as he had come to the area of Samaria, he said, and many of the women believed. When they believed the things concerning the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. Baptism. In what way did they become servants to God? Baptism was involved. In Acts 18, 8, do we not there see many of the Corinthians hearing believe and were baptized? To the church in Rome, Paul wrote, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Know ye not that so many of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also walk in newness of life. Thus, we notice in that text a beautiful likeness in which you and I, in being baptized, undergo an enactment of, in type, the very thing that happened to our Lord. Hence, if we refuse to be baptized, we're not allying ourselves with the Savior. Note Galatians 3, 26 and 7. For we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of us as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. No baptism into Christ, then you haven't put Christ on. That doesn't seem that difficult to understand. In 1 Peter 3, 21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. What is it that saves us? It's no figment of a person's imagination. The inspired text says that in that act of baptism, one completes and culminates those acts in which an individual is saved. You and I are not at liberty to rest and twist, Mark 16, verse 16. As we come to the close of that sheet, we can perhaps see that any number of ways can help us easily understand the thoroughness of that English sentence. I've listed only one at the bottom of that page. Suppose one were to make this statement. He who comes downstairs and goes outside the building shall be rescued. What is the conclusion? Suppose a person comes downstairs but does not go outside. Will he be rescued? Well, obviously not. If we can make sense of a sentence like that one, why can't individuals make sense of a text like Mark 16, 16? I might submit that text is not difficult to understand. It is not written on a grade level accordance to a senior in college. It doesn't require a PhD in Aristotelian logic to understand it. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. In concluding our lesson today, could we not summarize with some of these thoughts? 
Mark's version of the Great Commission is a beautiful text. It presents in elegance and simplicity the power of humble and submissive obedience to the commandments of the gospel. Though men may twist and rest passages like Mark 16, 16, they do that to their own destruction. And it's a sadness, and it may bring tears to our eyes to see that kind of perversion. But you and I mustn't fall into such thinking. Jesus, the apostles, the first century church, and you and I as faithful Christians must stand four square on the truth of this passage. Believe it, obey it, teach it ourselves. Thus, friend, have you believed Jesus to be the Son of God, and have you been baptized? If you haven't done both of those, perhaps you're in need of doing it. Maybe you've reached the point in life that you know what needs to be done. You have heard enough lessons or you've studied on your own. You're aware of the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. If we could be of assistance to you in your obedience today, believe Jesus indeed to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name audibly before others and be baptized. Upon so doing, Christ will add you to His church. If you have done that, and knew the goodness of God's glory and tasted the good works that He had for you. Hebrews 6, verse 4. But you've walked away from it. You have, in fact, lived in such a way that you have made no public association with the Savior at all. You've done things, you've said things, you've been places you shouldn't have been, and others know it. You need the prayers of brethren to welcome you back home, and you need God's forgiveness so that you can come back home. We'd be happy to pray for you today. We'd be happy to approach God in prayer that He'd forgive those sins and provide you with strength that you can begin to walk again in the way that you should. If we could be of assistance to you today, let us know that if you would while together we stand and while we sing.